Welcome to Following the Leftovers, the officially unofficial podcast for The Leftovers on HBO. I'm Jim. I'm Aaron. And today we're talking about Season 2, Episode 4, entitled Orange Sticker. I think we all understand what that's about. Yeah. Uh, assuming you've seen this episode, and if not... What are you doing listening yeah, to this? Yeah, come on. They, they peel an orange sticker off the, the house, and the orange sticker signifies that the house has been cleared. They, they verified that these people actually had no disappearances, mm-hmm. no departures. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think about this episode in general? So I have some interesting feelings on it. Yeah, I mean, I thought it's it's not as crazy go nuts as the first three episodes, but I don't think it's reasonable to expect a show to be that full throttle insane for an entire season. Okay, cool. That's if, exactly how I If feel they could pull it, it off, yeah. that'd be great. But even Breaking Bad, one of the crazier go nuts ep- series of all time, had two, three, sometimes even four set up episodes. Yes. Yeah. You got to get, you got to get the next thing set up. And this is another solid episode. You know, it's not, yeah, it's not amazing on every front, like the first three, but it is really good. It's what you need around. to set up the next series of stomach punches that I'm sure we will endure. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Uh, where do you want to start with this thing, man? Uh, how about the fact that how many cold opens has the leftovers had? Well, you pointed out to me while we were watching it, not very many. Like and maybe I, the pilot back, had the cold yeah. open of the, uh, you know, the 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 all the the goofiness of the actual departure. But I'm and and I don't even know. Hmm. I couldn't swear in a stack of Bibles that that was in fact a cold open. Uh, the, yeah, you know, cold opens are kind of rare on HBO. Period. So I wonder why they decided to do. And this was not just a cold open; it's a knocked out cold open because poor Nora. <laughs> <laughs> gets laid out. Oh man, I love that shot. But because we talked about what it must be like to her to wake up and for Kevin not to be there, but seeing it, you know, having Carrie Coon just losing her shit like she does so well. Yeah, we know. I mean, everybody knows. John knows at this point. Like she's here for one reason to feel safe. Yeah. And when she thinks Kevin is departed, yeah. she no longer feels safe and freaks the fuck out. And there's a lot of things like, you know, the fact that she's going outside and they, the neighbors are awake because they found out their daughter's gone. And then she sees this yeah. dog running off its leash. This is all suggesting that another departure has happened. Uh, she's, she puts, she puts uh Lily. Is yeah. that her name? Mm-hmm. Lily in a box, a cardboard yep. box and then passes out and some time elapses and the baby's just fine. Yeah, I this I'd... this is a uh, Holly from Breaking Bad levels of dramatically appropriate crying from this baby. Totally. I I just think it's funny to see her putting a baby in a box. <laughs> like, <laughs> no really? One puts, no one puts baby in a box. You're just going to do that, but the shot of her passing out is amazing. Man, the the force you feel from flipping that shot upside down. Yes, it's like she hit the ground so hard the cameraman flipped upside down like a Super <laughs> Mario Brother turtle. Yeah, that's how and it. So I think if you probably motion stabilize that, that that looks fairly brutal on camera. But when you combine it with the sudden camera move, yep. it looks like she hits like a ton of bricks. Yeah, I loved it. it was Great good stuff. Uh, and then also the scene of her, like, this is a modern day thing. Like you feel a giant earthquake. You're going to look, okay, I need to turn on the news. I need to, to, oh shit, I don't have cable. Oh my God, I don't have Wi-Fi. Oh my God, my cell phone's uncharged. Ah! Yeah, I just moved in. None, yeah. none of this shit's working how it should. And it's so great. And then yeah. she calls 9-11, just has barely able to keep it together. And she eventually just, you know, not the fucking earthquake, the... And I think Kevin walks in and that's such a great nuanced scene. And that's kind of yeah. carries the rest of the episode that she's so full body relieved 
that he walked back in that door. But now she's... Yeah, so this is super interesting. Her mm. reaction to all of it is totally understandable on so many levels, but it's also hard for me to really gauge exactly how much she's angry at Kevin, exactly how much she's just freaked out. Mm-hmm. I-, I think they do such a a perfect job, and it's it's partially her performance and partially the writing on it, that... Of making me not quite sure, making me feel like Kevin, you know, like I'm not totally sure if she's angry at me. Yeah, no, you I'm really not, do feel that ambiguity coming through the screen. Like, does she know that I'm not telling 100% truth? Because he comes right out and says, look, I passed out, I slept, walked, I ended up but she, at the location where all of this shit went down. Like, there, something is weird here. But he's totally honest about that part of it, right? No, but... He's half honest, as Pat, as Patty points out. Like, there didn't talk about the uh, cinder block. Doesn't sure. talk about Patty. So he's being truthy, truth-ish with her. And I. So so we're left to believe whether does she sense some of that? Does she know? Yeah. Does she know? Is it? I mean, it's a perfectly. You know, for her to be angry that he put her through this, even though he had no control over. Let's grant that he had no control over it. Mm-hmm. You. Know, Carrie Coon plays this character very smart. Like, she's like, I am angry, but I know I don't have a real concrete right or reason to be angry, but I'm still yeah. feeling these feelings. So I'm going to be very civil to you, but I'm also wanting to just lose my shit and scream and probably slap you and punch you. But I know that that wouldn't be cool to do. And I don't and know. And when you layer it on top of what we know about her being freaked out yeah. about the possibility of another departure here, yeah, that works so well. I relate to that because I feel like when I'm angry or depressed, I don't know what to do with it in regards to my family. Because, yeah, yeah. like, I mean, sometimes you don't I feel like. take they, it out on them. No, but I feel like maybe they would be. It's more disconcerting to see the, uh, you know, someone that's that's angry, upset about something, but they're not able to talk about it. It's, it's, it's more frustrating for that than if they, like, maybe I just come in and start screaming and punching a wall. They at least know, like, mm-hmm. oh, well, dad's pissed off. I don't know. So I felt like that's very realistic. Like a a, a person, yeah, who's I, very rational and aware of their feelings and knows that they're entitled to them, but also there's not really a healthy way to output them. I, I don't know. I felt like that's and she also and kind of feels silly herself for being so angry, right? Like I'm I'm feeling very vulnerable at this point, and I kind of freaked the fuck out. I know he saw that. I know that I really. I'm I'm a little embarrassed by why I freak the fuck out because I'm feeling so vulnerable. Like there's a lot wrapped up in this where she doesn't totally just want to talk about it. Well, speaking of dishonesty, let's talk about her conversation with Jill later in the episode where she's just like, uh, are you even close to being old enough to drink? Oh, you're not even oh, a legal God. adult. Oh, well, finding out that someone's close to 18 is close enough is never the right response. And that's <laughs> it ever, ever. Eh, I feel like it's uh, I'm not going to judge her. She's been through a lot. If so you are, Jill. she's trying to man. be the cool stepmom. She needs someone to drink, and her dad's not there. Uh-huh. But I'm just saying, close enough. Nora no. says emphatically that the sudden departure was a one-time event; it'll never happen again. Trying to reassure because yeah. I've got this experience of researching hoax, and I can say with authority, she doesn't believe that because. We've seen her freak out at the concept of a second departure happening, and then when she was confronted with the reality of it, potentially, mm-hmm. she also freaked out. So who – is she lying to herself or is she lying to Jill? 
Because that's what you would tell your 17-year-old stepdaughter. Uh, I think it's both. I think she she is lying to Jill, um, but she's doing it because she's lying to herself. She wants to believe this desperately. And I think that's the interesting thing they're doing with this potential de- second departure, right? They're mm. setting up conflicts of belief here between different people. Like, John certainly is not going to admit this is a second departure, right? Probably not. I mean, he he doesn't want miracles. Although he's he doesn't talking, want this shit to start He's happening. talking out of both sides of his his face, too. That's true. You know, it's like, we're going to go beat up a liar because he accurately predicted something, but he did it because he did it himself. I mean, he's a kind of studying yeah. contradictions, too. But I think it's interesting, this theme, and you see Jill, because Jill's been a very happy girl mm-hmm. these last three episodes, and level-headed and people are like i don't know if i like this jill i don't know if i if like jill was so much more interesting last year now she's just kind of like this generic supportive daughter part of the reason is because the people in her life were shooting straight with her Mm -hmm. and weren't like you know she mentioned she i thought she had a pretty insightful thing about kevin's like hey my dad was in charge of town Mm -hmm. he couldn't lose a shit so he did all this other stuff to lose his shit, and now he's down here, and he is who he is. Good point. Um, and if you remember last season, he wasn't talking to her at all. Yeah. He was just ignoring her. Exactly, and she was acting out and doing all these things. Now she's happy yeah. because both of her parents in her life are shooting straight with her. Mm-hmm. Now her dad's starting to be sketchy, and she's since that. And remember, there was this thing, this important scene where Nora says, I'm sorry I lied to you about this gun. I'm never going to lie to you again. Well, she's already she's now lying to her again. So I'm starting to think yeah. that we're going to see some weird behavior from Jill now, too, which is fine. Maybe I so. Like, we we I start like to Jill. see it, right? She's trying to – I don't know what necessarily she's doing with this kid next door, with Michael. I don't think she understands. I don't think he understands. Sure, sure. But we start to see her her story coming more into focus as as we get through these episodes, right? So I, I agree with you. She's not going to be satisfied just kind of sitting here while the grownups do their thing, So especially being lied to. We're talking about Nora. I do like how smart she is and how she has a no-nonsense way of dealing with these problems. Like, on lesser shows, oh, my God, what to do about the cell phone would be a fucking plot. And she's like, you go out there and try to find it. And if you can't, you say that you lost it during a search. Super smart. So uh, the Hardy boy is coming, right? Like, Uh I'm... She's clearly the one giving Kevin advice here on what to do. Because Kevin's kind of the one throwing his hands up going, oh, my God, cell phone. Wait, are you talking about Nora or Patty? Because I was talking about Nora. I'm I'm talking about Nora at the moment, but I want to go to the comment about the Hardy Boys. Okay. Nora is the one giving Kevin advice, who's Kevin is kind of the one throwing his hands up. Mm -hmm. Going, oh, God, cell phone lost. I'm fucked. Sure. Uh, She does the very basic thing of telling him, retrace your steps, Mm -hmm. go find your phone, and say you lost it today, mm-hmm. uh, which Patty later on in the episodes calls basic Hardy Boys bullshit, mm-hmm. essentially. Like, these guys are fucking idiots, and mm-hmm. they were able to stumble through this. Now, it depends on what you believe about the nature of Patty, but is Kev like, I believe that Patty is part of Kevin's psyche. She is not physically there or ethereally there through some ghost She's not Patty. a ghost, right? She's a a figment of his imagination and part of his psyche. I think that's where I am coming at it from too, as a rational person. Okay. So that would be Kevin himself saying this is basic Hardy boys bullshit. Is he berating himself for not thinking of that? Or is he saying that 
Nora's not as smart as I think she is. Like, well, you could read into that, but it also could be if if Pag- Patty is a figment of his imagination. Let's say Patty is his subconscious that's taking over when he's going into dream time. Sure, or that's the the evil part of him that's given a voice. Uh, then it's entirely possible that his conscious mind doesn't have all the information his subconscious has, and we're actually seeing. Yeah. His subconscious, like this whole hot and cold game, is oh, just yeah. him remembering where he was. Completely. Or, mm-hmm. you, but now, there's a couple of things that kind of blur the line here. The Cleveland Steamer story, where Patty's talking about things that she went through with her ex-husband. That, uh, you know, that I like this. He wasn't, she wasn't, he wasn't cheating on her. Never once asked me to shit on him. <laughs> but, you know, that seems, that struck me as a genuine line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, no, I you didn't it. even give me the chance? Like, maybe like, I would have shit on your chest. It, it, but but regardless, right? Yeah, right. the point is, he never even asked. You didn't trust me enough to share this part of you with you. It's like, that's the yeah. real betrayal. Like, And it feeds right back into Kevin and Nora's story here, right? Yes. Like, Kevin's not telling him, uh, Kevin's not telling big, Nora what he the, actually did that night. And she's yes. not telling him how she feels about be- being safe and everything. But the interesting thing about that is that's something that Kevin has no way of knowing. But Unless they throw some they throw some ambiguity in there yes. too, which I love because she's like, "Well, I don't know what doctor patient confidentiality is like. Maybe she told you about these things." Right. So they're I giving thought an- themselves an out. I thought another possibility is maybe that's something Kevin was into, and Kevin is <laughs> the man theory. in this story. And and during <laughs> <laughs> and because if you remember, his departure thing happened when he was fucking some other woman, right. cheating on Lori. He wasn't squatting over his chest though. If that's no, where you're no, going. no. I, I'm not. Well, I'm, who knows? Maybe, <laughs> or maybe he's having some kind of. Uh, I don't know. Just. He's telling Imagining us a white version. Yeah. They're they're choosing to show the whitewashed version of his own imagining of the departure sex that he had. I don't know. So we certainly know that he was cheating on Lori, right? Yes, that's one thing we know for sure. And i I don't know how much of this is him interleaving his story in with this Patty character, because if you believe that Patty is his his subconscious, yeah. then that could certainly happen. Or how much of it is. Lori told me these things about you. And also, which I he, could also buy. You know, Kevin had a basic loathing of Patty. So if his subconscious is manifesting itself as that, he could just invent the story as a discuss, you know, as so this story ties into him because he was cheating on his wife, her, her husband was cheating on. So he could have invented all this. Like and there's he, and lots of different explanations for it. And Patty is part of the thing. Like in, in my mind, Patty is the part of his subconscious that he's feeling guilty about. Right, like telling him, "Oh, you want to kill yourself." Telling him, uh, "You're there's this guy that's doing horrible things, uh, cheating on me." That that could be Kevin feeling guilty about what he's done to Lori as well. Mm-hmm. Kind of weaving that story as part and having that residual guilt, even though it's been a long time. I want to talk about Matt for a minute. Do you buy that his wife had a moment of lucidity and they spent all night talking to each other and then he woke up in the morning and it was just a beautiful dream or Man, I love this show. Yeah. <laughs> Cuz that's piece... such a good question because mm-hmm. I I don't know. I genuinely don't know. I could see Matt just wishing so hard that he bought into his own dream mm-hmm. as reality. And I could also see Maybe there is something special about Miracle. 
Well, so when Matt is in his prayer circle during the search and rescue scene and Nora kind of intrudes on and he's this woman's leaning through a prayer saying we are the 9,261 that were spared and we are special. Rah, rah, go us. Yeah. Matt's holding hands and he's saying that as if he is one of the 9,261. He is not. No, he's not. So I don't know what to make of that. Is that the producer saying that he is not necessarily being honest with himself? Like he is so desperate to have this persona of this and this spared miracle situation. That he's making stuff up and he's hmm. joint. He's, he's, he's doing this to kind of blend in like, Oh, I've got a miracle too. I, there's something just really weird about seeing a guy who's not, it's like, if you had for a nine eleven survivor, you like survived the building to have a person that was across the set town stand up on stage with you, or better yet, no, yeah, yeah. this person's actually from Texas. They're from Jarden, Texas, and they're on the stage because they just really feel solidarity with you. It's a little off putting. Like that's a very specific yeah. prayer that you are now endorsing as being a part of this group, and you're not. And that might be one of the themes of the story that you can't be part of Jarden, or maybe Jarden's not even something to be a part of now. Because man, I got yeah. tons of interesting biblical takes on Jarden. Okay, uh, this, awesome. this episode. The other thing that's super interesting about Matt's story in this episode, and that we find out, I, I think we find out much more about what happened in that first episode. Um, in the first episode, he he's introduced by this preacher as the the interim preacher. He's going to come up on mm-hmm. stage and he's going to talk about his experience uh, and introduce himself. And the preacher cuts him off when he's about to talk about Mary because John would have hurt. And- exactly, I think yeah. he. So we clearly see him eyeing John and noticing that John is in the audience today. I I think that's obviously why he cuts him off there because John would not tolerate this claim of a miracle in miracle. There are no miracles in miracle, according to John. Mm-hmm. So. That lends a lot more insight into what John's thinking, A, and B, what happened with Matt. Mm, I agree. And, and the conflict that's going to probably ensue shortly. We're talking about Jill and what she's doing in this relationship she's forging with Michael. Uh, first of all, do you know how to fix a sink? Is such a porno. Come on. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, you need some pipe? Some, you have some problems with pipe? You need to lay? Oh, uh, yeah, I can lay that pipe. Yeah. Uh, Jesus, Jill. Calm down now. Calm down. Uh, but he mentions that he, in this scene, he stresses out or makes people uncomfortable. Uh, people like you uncomfortable. And he's like, people, she's like, people like you. He's like, people don't believe in God. Yeah. Because he's obviously got a very rapture take on this, it seems like. And she says, you don't make me feel uncomfortable. I've always got some theological ambiguities from Jill. Like, do you think that this is kind of hint that maybe Jill wants to believe in God or used to believe in God or has some complicated feelings about God? Because she also seemed like she, unlike the other youths, was genuinely affected by the whole baby Jesus scenario. Yeah, she was. Uh, that like oh Even that though wasn't... she kind of instigated a lot of it, yeah, she had a change of heart toward the end. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I I don't know quite what to make of that, but I want to throw it out there. Yeah, I could see her being up in the air about that stuff. Uh, we also got the town like the the visitors like breaking through the police lines to get what's little of the water left. Yeah. Um. I I just, again I don't know that what that means because the Jarden faithful seem like they're skeptical of the whole healing power of the water, but that seems like it's a big thing to the outsiders. Jarden water. It's so great. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, what is, so if you believe that the water is special somehow 
and that this earthquake caused it to disappear, what does that say about the status of Jarden or the status of specifically Miracle as a place of miracles at this point? If, especially as it coincides with the secondary departure, if that's in fact what happened. All right. Right? So many questions are raised by the disappearance specifically, I think, of this water. Let's talk about Babylon. Babylon Motel. Babylon's yeah. Motel that Isaac, there's so much layers of meaning in here. <laughs> so, and I was going on the, I was actually participating in a Reddit thread about some of this stuff before we got into the podcast. I think I know where you're going with Babylon and water. Sure. Maybe. Uh, so first of all, Bab- Isaac being in exile from Jarden mm-hmm. is interesting. And that's Babylon because, you know, Babylon's associated in people's minds. Uh, you know, that's where the Jews spent their years in exile when God turned their, his favor away from him and let them be conquered by the... The Babylonian Empire. Yeah. Uh, the other thing about the the book in that is that God eventually, after a while, uh, turned against his instrument of justice and liberated his people in the form of uh, the Persian Empire. And the the Bible tells a story as the king of Babylon is having this big feast, and a disembodied hand wrote a bunch of magic wall, words on the wall, mm-hmm. and he brought in Daniel, this this aged Jewish magician kind of that he had enslaved a long time ago and now as a boy and now he's a he's an old man and says no none of my other magic magicians can decipher this daniel what does it mean and he says this this means you're fucked means that god's measured you found you wanting and your destruction is going to come tonight yeah but the king apparently doesn't actually heed the warning because he continues with his feast he leaves the city lightly guarded the Persians drained the Euphrates River, which mm-hmm. is the big moat, the, the living moat around Babylon that protected it, yeah. and then walked across the dry riverbed and laid the city bare, just destroyed it. Yeah. That has a lot of interesting <laughs> parallels. Oh, hell yeah. So let's say – so so beyond the obvious – Especially considering the earthquake and the, you know, the act of God sort of feeling you get – with the earthquake being the draining cause, right? And and Isaac, as the holy man who's got a cross in his ear and all this stuff, tells John, "Yeah, something bad's going to happen to you, man." Uh-huh. And John's reaction is to be like, "Whatever," <laughs> and have a feast in his honor. That very night, the yeah. waters drain from Jordan, and his daughter goes missing, and his city is 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 left bare and, and devastated. There's go. I mean, that's all intentional. There, there. This is a big something that happened that night has changed the fate of Jordan. It's got to be. I mean, if you want to say that these symbols mean anything that can be translated to the literal world, do you think that we will have a disembod some someone severed hand show up <laughs> later on with some words written in blood on a wall? I doubt it will be that that literal of a parallel. Uh. Do you, now, the other thing that I think is interesting about – one of the things that really pissed off God good and plenty with the Babylonians was that during this big feast, they planned as a way to humiliate the Jews in the captivity is they were going to do this feast. They're pagan gods, and they're going to use the temple utensils. Like they're going to drink out of the cups and the knives and forks or whatever the the priests and the rabbis had. They're going to use that in their own pagan celebration, and that's what God's like. Ah, you know what? Fuck you. I'm I'm bringing the Persians. I'm bringing the thunder. Last straw. Yep. There's been a weirdly specific emphasis on like bathtub Marys and other religious iconography this season. I wonder if there's going to be some kind of if if John has been like desecrating something, or there, there's that's going to add that. That's another thing I'm looking. I'm looking for severed hands. 
with magic words, and I'm looking for desecration of holy objects okay. as a way that maybe Jarden has brought this on himself. Is is the townsfolk idolatry of, of themselves? Like we are the nine thousand two hundred sixty okay. ones, and we is yeah. that kind of the biblical levels of hubris that would irritate. disobeying the first commandments type stuff? Yeah, shall have no other gods. Yeah, they become their own god. I I don't know. That's an interesting translation of that of the writing on the wall there. So that's the uh... there's clearly a guy who knows a thing or two. And I want to talk about this in relation to John and and his whole thing of, like, there are no miracles in Miracle. Virgil. Virgil has a really interesting scene with Nora when she's in the convenience store after... I, I'm not certain that it was an earthquake that did the damage to that store. It might have been the goat attack that yeah. happened previously. <laughs> like, you see the guy with the goat who we know, that's his deal. He goes around slaughtering goats. Yeah. Uh, you see him walking out with a live goat. Mm-hmm. I wonder if the lady chased him off. Like, he was in there ready to slaughter this I, that's goat. That's what I got it. There was a, a, a scuffle, and things got knocked over, and she drove this goat guy out. Yeah, could be. And it wasn't really the earthquake. Because she doesn't seem like she has much patience for this. Like, when Virgil starts off with a sorry, if you're like, yeah. God damn it, Virgil, I told you to stop creeping people out. She's got, she's over it. Like, she's not, yeah. this isn't the diner lady. Like, I'm not cleaning up goat's blood today. I will <laughs> clean up this fucking <laughs> gift card stand, but I'm not going to clean again. up goat blood. Yeah. Yeah, I so that's, I don't know. That's kind of a, just a side point. But the thing that's really interesting is Virgil telling Nora, "Sorry for your loss. It, it's a horrible thing what happened, and it takes Nora back as a second. Uh, we know that he's done this before, right? Sure. He did this to Kevin. Yep, I can help you with the situation. And I, my my theory stands. I think this is John's dad. Uh huh. He's clearly living out in the middle of nowhere. Because Michael goes way out of the way to see him. He's living in this, like, trailer or something out in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. It, it just is reinforcing my idea that John, after refusing to believe that there are miracles and miracle and actively pursuing anyone who says that there are um, or who pretends like there are, mm-hmm. I I want to say that John has had a falling out with his father mm-hmm. and said, look, man, you can't go around saying this shit you're my father. I'm not going to beat you and burn down the house, but you need to go away. Hmm. And so Virgil has kind of gone to the outskirts of this city. He's still in Jarden, though. He's not he off is, the reservation, is. I don't think. But but he stays kind of out of the way, right? So I have an alternate interpretation for this scene. Okay. When Because there's some people on Reddit that speculated that perhaps Kevin subconsciously took him up on his offer and he left in the middle of the night, went to Virgil's house, and... Either Virgil put him up to killing himself, or as a result of the conversation that they had, he tied a cinder block. And, and when he said, I'm sorry for your loss... So he knew about it. He was assuming that Kevin died. Oh. And he was actually saying that. Wow. I don't know. See, I, I took it I don't to know. mean like I, you I don't, lost your whole family I don't, yeah, in the departure. I, I, true, but it would be just like the show to recontextualize that later to, you know... I. I, I I don't. I don't have a lot of stock in that theory, but I thought it's interesting enough to mention yeah. it on the podcast. And it's hard to say that's not possible. No, no, because <laughs> it doesn't contradict anything that we absolutely know. And it could also be like, you know, th- there's this conversation with Patty about whether or not Lori's told him anything about her. Uh, it could be that if they did have a conversation, Kevin and uh, Virgil, that he just told her about Lori. Not sorry, Nora's situation. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Uh, yeah. We're talking about Patty, whether she's real or not, 
and and Kevin's reaction to all this. Here's a piece of evidence. She knows that the car is there waiting for the top at the, of the the empty lake bed before Kevin climbs up the ladder. There's no way Kevin could know that John was sitting there waiting for him at the top of his car. Yeah. Also, or is what, there? What is John could you, doing out there? Could you under, could you maybe could he have heard it subconsciously pull up or faintly? Or I mean, I suppose so. But because that, that's the one piece I can't explain how he knew that that if if that's just a figment of his imagination, there's nothing supernatural or extra awareness about it. How did he know that John was up there? Because she said, "Don't yeah, get in I that didn't... car," and he's like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" Climbs the top of the ladder. There's a fucking car. I mean, probably. I suppose he could hear a truck coming. I, I didn't like listen to the sound. Wait, but I'm saying is like that, I don't like shows that fool me, and the yeah. way they presented the scene as if Kevin genuinely did not know. Mm-hmm. Um, again, you could explain it away, but I would I don't like that explanation. So to me, that's a that's a genuine puzzle. What is what does John do if Kevin's not here? Like clearly, I don't know what he's out there for. Is he just out there to start looking again? Because no, he seems hell bent on fucking up Isaac from that point on. Maybe his brothers at the fire department had talked him out of it. He went there to kind of get drunk, and then Kevin okay. shows up. I thought Kevin's analysis was pretty right on. Like he knows he shouldn't do this, and he found he went out there to kind of drink himself into a stupor. He found this guy. And he's like, okay, okay, well maybe Kevin. That makes sense. That's why he's got the beers with him. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Maybe, maybe that's what it is. Uh, what happens if Kevin just says, "Fuck you, man. I'm not getting in the car." Which, like he should have done. Uh, probably not what happened. I don't think he goes to Isaac. If if you're saying he was there just to drink himself mm-hmm. stupid, mm-hmm. then yeah, he probably doesn't go beat the shit out of Isaac. Do you think he gets violent with Kevin? Because the way he was kind of menacing about like, no, man, I've got you. Get in the car. Yeah, he was. I'm not. I don't think that Kevin was necessarily intimidated by him because, you know, he's a cop and yeah, he looks yeah. like he could handle himself. And But on the other hand, John's gone to jail for murdering someone or attempted to murder someone. Attempting, yeah. So, and Kevin's unarmed. Mm -hmm. He just has a muddy brick cell phone. Uh, I don't know. Mm. And also, so we talked about Patty knowing the car is there. That might be evidence that she has some kind of special power. But essentially nothing bad happened to Kevin. He learned a lot about the situation and behind the scenes information he wouldn't have. Like, yeah. Is that Patty trying to keep him in the dark? Because he would have never known mm. any of that information had he not. Like, he found out a lot of exposition, valuable information for a guy like Kevin to have by going on the car. Whereas if Patty wants to keep him, I mean, that's kind of. Is it just that she couldn't have known the outcome of that? Like, Or or know. is that going to have repercussions later on that we haven't seen it's, yet? It's weird because it's like, again, both sides out of the show's mouth. I I don't. You know, her saying don't go in there and then actually that was a beneficial thing for him to do implies that she doesn't have any clairvoyant powers, but she knew about the car in the first place. So maybe she does have clairvoyant powers, but she's deliberately deceiving Kevin to her own end and manipulating him. Or is he he obviously just heard the car coming? Like there's a lot of questions. She's the character of Patty is manipulating Kevin, whether that's his internal psyche at war with itself or it's an external force. Certainly. That's, I don't know. Again, I would think this would get tedious eventually, but so far, so good. Yeah. Uh, we get the get the birthday box again. 
Yeah, what? And they ask, what's in the box? I don't think it's well, we a don't cricket know. anymore because... No. We're too far away from that, I guess. It would have chirped. We would have heard, like, if for that still to be the cricket, it would have had to have a chirp somewhere in the episode. Unless it's dead. Like, it she, died against... she killed it and was saying, hey, I killed the cricket for you. Oh, well, or if the cricket came alive in the box and she opened it up and was horrified and killed it again. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. No, I... What's in the box? Clearly, is, is it's now a question kind of driving me crazy. I, I yeah. need to know what's in the box within the next few episodes. I mean, cl- uh, this, we got to know what's in the box this ep- this season, yeah? Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Come on. Okay. And what's in the box? Is what's in the box going to be a miracle? Like an obvious miracle that John can't deny? Hmm. And what does that mean? What I, I think that's eventually what's going to happen. He's going to come face to face with what he believes is the paranormal, and he's going to have all this guilt about running guys like Isaac out of town, the fractured relationship yeah. with his father. I can just see him going out to the Christmas tree trailer, and the uh-huh. fucking strings and pianos I'm are going, sorry, and not... he's steer- they're yeah. both crying, and they hug. Yeah, I can see that. I can and see and there's also a hint of like, he's definitely had a discussion with his son, right? Cause his son goes out to where all these people are selling these trinkets and stuff and mm-hmm. claiming miracle. Jordan is the miracle town. And he's not, but he's not he's the exception. He's Michael is weirdly low key about that stuff. That's what I mean. He's the exception. Ah, gotcha. To everyone right. else who's going, look at this miracle. Yeah, yeah. So you, you got to think that's because of John's stance on miracles and Jordan. He won't let his son say that. And if he heard that his son was, which he probably has before, like maybe that's how it started out, like miracle water and John put the kibosh on that. Okay. Like that's my headcanon going. Yeah, no, I, I could, I can, uh, I can see that. What do you, do you think this muddy palm print, it served a purpose of, of setting John against Isaac. Is it going to go anywhere else? Because it's a muddy palm print. I don't know that you actually get a print. The yeah, cops said they got a know. good print off of it, which implies that mm-hmm. they can do some matching. And I I would believe that a chief of police would be fingerprinted at some point. Oh, yeah. I, in their career. I believe that if they can get that print, which it sounds like they did, they'll connect it to Kevin. And I... I think that sets up some great tension. I mean, there's like, a lot of practical reasons you'd want to fingerprint all your police officers. Number one, if their prints come up on a crime scene, you know right away that, well, I guess... It's a perfect way to commit a crime, though. Well, Become a police officer, have your fingerprints... Well, of course I had my fingerprints done, all yeah. over there. I was on the crime scene. Well, oh, why yeah, are you, no, why I guess that does cut both ways. But yeah. it just seems like they would have that shit on file. I would think so. Yeah. I'll, believe it or not, a lot of people's fingerprints are on file just by going to banks and stuff. Sure. You you probably listening to this have your fingerprint on file. Yeah, somewhere I got like I so I never I don't think I was ever fingerprinted until I got my gun permit because oh. I was been they they fingerprinted See, the hell out of me. Bank accounts, opening uh, of a bank account, they fingerprinted me. Did they? Which yeah. bank? Chase. Really? Yep. I guess I've not opened one until because I've never been never been fingerprinted. I'd huh. probably told them to go to hell if they wanted it. <laughs> uh. Anyway. What else we want to talk about? Because so I, I guess I didn't really get your opinion. Do you think the muddy palm print has served its purpose, or is it still going to throw some more tension between? Because that, I yeah, mean, I think it's gonna be a wedge between John and Kevin. Wedge. I mean, I mean, it's more. Yeah, Kevin you're right. might get jail time. Like he might get arrested for this kind of shit. It's more than a wedge. And like if if Evie doesn't show up again before the palm print is discovered, uh, John's just gonna want to straight up murder Kevin. Mm. oh yeah i mean there's I mean, no doubt about that 
So Did you think that's one of the most unrealistic parts of this episode? What do you mean? Got a drama set in Texas. We have a home intrusion, and only one twenty-two round is fired. <laughs> like I figured that yeah, that's like Yosemite yeah. Sam style. Blam, 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 before even that's what know, I was breaks the window. Like, if I'm Isaac, I'm shooting more than one time. This is Texas, goddammit. Uh <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh another thing I wanted to talk about is I guess the end of this, I don't know. There's there's Patty talking about uh Kevin and not loving his family and Nora's whole situation as to why she's doing what she's doing. Uh and since I think that Patty is I, I think Patty is representative of Kevin's inner turmoil, right? The struggle that he's feeling over all of this stuff, like Lori and the departure and the stuff with his daughter and the stuff with Nora, like all of this is adding up to questions that he has about what he actually wants. And Patty is representative of that, Mm. in in my opinion. Like it it was just fuel on the fire once he saw this whole uh, guilty remnant and Patty killing herself and all that stuff. No, I think she works well as a physical manifestation of his guilt. Um, yeah, which is weird because like I thought that that was kind of the dog catcher in season one, but we did eventually find yeah, out yeah. the dog catcher is a real person. He's real, certainly. Which kind of implies that Patty is real a little, like by deduction. So right? they tease us with that too, right? Like the I guy mean, up in the tower says, "Who's your friend?" Uh, well, right. <laughs> which you know, again, Kevin was talking to himself finally, and I thought that was great how he. I thought it, it's it's really interesting to see Patty carry on this monologue with Kevin having no part of it. But then, like, yeah. he finally gets desperate in the bottom of the lake. Mm-hmm. And he's like, okay, I'll f- I don't believe in you, and I'm not acknowledging you, but you're having an effect on my on my life. I, I'm, I'm taking yeah. your guidance. And that's – I and thought that was interesting how she's giving these breadcrumbs, and he finally bit on one. And then she pushed him and pushed him until he exploded it. on her. And so it was John C. Riley catching on to the fact that he's talking to himself or can he see patty so it's it's if he can see patty because if he can see patty then she is some kind of real thing i don't think he can see patty and here's why okay i can imagine a guy stuck up by himself alone on the top of that tower for as long as he's been up there would also have an invisible friend right a a part of himself that he talks to sure he could be another kevin senior i could totally see him identifying with kevin shouting at the wind here Mm -hmm. who's your friend Mm -hmm. because he himself has a friend so like yeah it's totally ambiguous and i i think it works really well Let's, let's since you broached the subject let's let's go through this um so she goads him into talking about uh, that you're, this isn't love, this isn't trust, this is damage control, and you're being emasculated, and if you loved them, you wouldn't lie. And a lot of this stuff yeah. hits home. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, there's a couple things I want to talk about. Number one, does Kevin want to kill himself? I kind of feel like Kevin wants to kill himself. Kevin wants to escape from his family, and now he's realized that he's doubled down on a new family, which is not what he wanted, because mm-hmm. it is, dead, and now he's looking for a, an absolute way out. I think there's part of him, yes, that does. That wants to die. Not necessarily yeah. to abandon his family. He just wants to die mm-hmm. for reasons that I'm not quite clear on myself. But I also think the part of him that says, I do love my family and I don't want to kill myself is also true. Hmm. Like, that's what I mean when I say that I think Patty is representative of that conflict is he feels both things and which will win is the question. 
So Patty grants him, like, okay, sure, you don't want to kill yourself, you love your family, you're entitled to your opinion. I'm glad we finally talked about it, which was funny, because that's the whole episode she's trying to get him to talk. <laughs> uh-huh. And then she also volunteers that, oh, the girls, they vanish. Yes, I love this line. But then she immediately goes into a Rick Astley song, which is... Are they Rickrolling? Like, is so, she so trolling if you don't know, because believe it or not, there are people that don't know what the fuck a Rickroll is, but a Rickroll is where you're like... Oh my God! New Star Wars Force Awakens trailer, and you link them, and a, a sophisticated version would hit you with the Fox logo, and then Lucasfilms presents, and then Rick Astley. Yeah, but a non-sophisticated version, which I actually got fell for on our own damn forums, <laughs> just goes right to the KSA Rick Astley one thousand one was like this really interesting article with Mar- uh, <laughs> Ann Dowd talks about like a really interesting angle for for Patty, yeah, and a, I click on it is just straight up naked Rickroll. That is a beautiful metaphoric forum comment. Yes, I liked it. It's good work, KSA. Uh, But is this if if, is this meta meta? If you're a writer, you absolutely have to know that Rick Rolling is a thing, right? But it works on multiple levels because a person like Patty maybe doesn't know what a Rick Roll is, and she's just singing, "I'm never going to give you up." Like I'm always going to be here. Yes, but also like taunting him that he has these feelings about his family and he doesn't want to be there. But for us, the cool, savvy Internet crew, she's giving him a definitive version of what happened and then Uh instantly rickrolling him, saying that like potentially undermining all of the things she's saying as being false. Right. Yeah, I I'm man. It's masterful. I think adding that in there in this day and age is perfect. Perfect. And it also. Okay, so let's say that he does believe her, right? The girls have vanished. If there is this second departure, or even if there isn't, but mm-hmm. if if certain people think that there is, it sets up a conflict between Kevin and Nora because Kevin thinks this secondary departure absolutely happened because I or Patty or whatever have told myself that. And Nora doesn't want to believe it, though she not does even, fears it. Not even doesn't believe it, but can't believe it, right? Yeah, yeah. She, it will drive her fucking insane if she Shh, believes that. Right. So now you've got these two people handcuffed together, mm. literally and and metaphorically, sure. believing two different sides of this issue. And I think that is both a commentary on what they're feeling and their lives and both the audience as well. Well, I thought it was I mean, interesting. It's, it's just... The metaphor and the themes in this show are fantastic. I thought it was interesting the performance he gave, Justin Thoreau gave, when Nora handcuffed herself to him. Because he didn't yeah. seem like he liked that at all. Yeah. Um, and then he makes this joke, I hope you found the key, too. Which was kind of... It's kind of innocent. But... Nora took it as kind of like a, a funny thing that Kevin would say. Yeah. But also, Kevin's has it... Their history is she shows up to the court... And he's like, yeah, I got a divorce. Oh, me too. I should have got a clue and my wife joined the guilty remnant. She's like, ha, ha, ha. He's like, oh, actually, I was being serious. (laughs) And they showed that scene. They do. In In the the previously on. So if you take that meta knowledge in, this could be seen as a glimpse into his true self, what he really thinks. Yeah, that key comment is telling. I don't know if he loves Nora or not. I don't know who to believe. Um, I feel like that he was very honest about feeling like an asshole as soon as the departure came because now all he wanted was his family and that, you know, he loves Jill and maybe he loves Tommy and he, but I not wanting the family yeah. was his genuine reaction before a moment of profound global loss and grief happened. Yeah. And no, you're right. that feels like that's the more honest thing. And now that he's handcuffed to this other woman, he's feeling kind of trapped. 
And I yeah, wonder if there's it's a battle between his guilt and his desire, I guess. Yeah. Uh, uh but it, you're right. I, I I do love that. And I the other thing is it's kind of a good idea, right? Like, you know, if you don't want him first of all, let him take a fucking shower before he gets in that disgusting ass bed. Yes. Or makes it a disgusting ass bed. Yes. I was gonna bring that up, but the a listener <laughs> did it better than than we could. Okay, but but second of all, yeah, it kind of the handcuffing works. Yeah, then and there's like interesting because like uh, Kevin is the dog, right? Mm-hmm. We saw a dog running free off the leash. Now we see Kevin yeah. the dog being leashed. I, I already said I'm looking for severed hand. I'm calling it. He's going to cut off Nora's <laughs> arm, and he's going to be running <laughs> oh around my crazy, God. covered in blood. You're right. Arm. Writing things on people's walls. Official prediction. Coloring that orange sticker back on the. <laughs> Back on the fucking wall. So the final scene we get, Jill gets out of her bed, investigates a rasp, rasp, rasping, rasping outside her chamber door, and it's Michael who's determined that his family house will bear an orange label, nevermore. Yeah. Uh, and then we get this epic grease cover, which I, you know, Isaac's trying to explain to you because you've never seen Grease. Because you and never, the song you, you, is never so, you never, you never had a teenage song, sister, yeah. But it's but so it's such an much upbeat different. and poppy song, and this being sung as a dirge, it was kind of amazing. Also huh. made famous by Olivia Newton-John, yeah, Australian. Oh, there you go. <laughs> There's our Australian wow. reference for the episode, and wow. then we get this never-ending pan, which I was morally certain was going to end in a pack of stray dogs running amok in the night. But we didn't get it. So what's up with the super long pan? Was that just building tension with no relief? Yeah, probably just a. Because I did you expect to I, see something bizarre, crazy, horrifying, all of the above? I mean, it could. I don't know. It felt like a decent outro. Like all this crazy shit you've seen. Enjoy nature. Yeah, for just, thirty seconds. Just here's here's the town it's happening in, and hmm. all right. Uh, I don't know. I guess I wasn't expecting anything there, honestly. The one oh, I almost moved on to feedback. There's one other thing I want to talk about. Uh, so, so this dense info dump we got about the Murphys, courtesy Erica stitching up John after he got shot. Yeah, yeah. By the single time. Uh, so we find out she was born four months premature. A long twenty something weeks. Yeah, and it's a she while. Was like not just just over a pound when she was born. Yeah. And she says, well, she's exceptional, just like this town. And um, her brother was born four months after. Mm-hmm. Do and you think twins. there's enough time in the season that we're going to go forward and one of the central mysteries is four months after Evie disappears, Michael's going to disappear? Yep. Hmm. Because else what? Uh, maybe she, if that were the case, like, would she be taken before the departure and Michael disappears in the actual departure? I well, and that's like, I don't know, like, there's a lot of stuff we haven't talked about, like the Noah's Ark theory. Yeah. Um, which is kind of essentially the world is damned, I guess. Um, that's yeah. if no sudden departures happen again. But it's coming from a character who feels like she got yeah. the short end of the stick anyway. And Michael, interestingly enough, I feel like he definitely, you know, he he said as much that I believe my sister was uh, departed. She's gone. Um, I don't know. I, I I think that would be interesting. Like I could see that happening late in season two. Uh, like maybe even the last thing is that Michael's gone, and it's exactly four months later. Jesus, because else I don't know what what all this meant. Poor John. Poor John. Um, so that's all I got. Do you want to get into feedback, or do you have any other thoughts you want to talk about? No, I think I'm good. All right. Uh, Jason T has a theory that I'm unfortunately gonna have to murder right in the crib. 
He says, what if we find out that the David Burton uh, fellow in Australia is on the exact opposite side of the world as in a small lake in Texas where Kevin attempts to drown himself? Mm. And he's like, maybe something about the coincidence of him coming back out of that cave and Kevin being spared is connected. And I'm like, holy shit, that's a hot theory. So it turns out I don't have a globe in my house. Except for my son's got a beach ball of the earth. (laughs) And I'm actually (laughs) – Highly accurate. I'm actually holding it up and trying to delight and like, you know what? Like part of Australia might kiss up against Texas. And I'm like, wait a second. There's got to be a website for this. And I Googled for opposite side of the earth. There's a website that will actually – you can put a a point anywhere on it and it will tell you exactly if you drilled a straight hole through the opposite side. And Using longitude and latitude, no doubt. Perth, Australia, is in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, the North Atlantic Ocean. If you Perth? drilled Perth, that's where the they said that I he came. Was, oh, oh, where the guy was resurrected. David Burton's in Sydney, though. So if you put it on the west coast of, uh, no, 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 the that would be the east coast of Australia. It's actually somewhere on the west coast of Africa. There's no place. Oh, there's no okay. way you can get Australia to be. Australia is not directly across from. Right. Right. The U.S. So, okay. unfortunately, that's a cool theory, but I, I'm morally certain that, that, that Perth is in the middle of the fucking Atlantic if we drilled a hole through, and <laughs> at no point in Australia would actually coincide with, with Texas. Okay. Uh, Allison said, uh, talking about last episode, there is a crucial thread missing during your conversation, the issue of Lori being broke. I think it was bigger than just not being able to afford a dress. During Tommy's speech, you hear everything has a price. So, to her... A huge argument for Lori and Tommy just concocting this myth and it not being a real thing is that they will make money off of their scheme. So she's saying that's another point okay. of evidence. Do you – that is not consistent with what I understand about Lori and Tommy's character. Well, they certainly have to make money somehow, right? Right, and I did mention that it seemed like Lori was super interested in, in, in uh, kickstarting, but I feel like that that was not for herself. It was to make money, and it's weird to like make money for – to fight a real cult by funding a fake cult. Sure. I don't like that any more. Than also, you do. Tommy sure doesn't seem like that's so it's like I guess I didn't think of it, but I also don't know that that's consistent with what we understand with their characters. I mean, I guess if you say, okay, they're not gonna take money for this cult thing, you still have to solve that problem somehow, right? Of mm-hmm. Lori having no money. Tommy oh, no, having sure. no money. So there's either going to be that's it or something else is going to but the, so be the I, source of their money. I mean, there's parallels there because I, I think Holy Wayne was a true believer in himself. Yeah. But in the end, he started using a lot of money and misappropriating those funds, mm-hmm. uh, even to the point of funneling money back towards his special children and all that. So it could be that they get so wrapped up in their own asshole that they turn into that kind of thing. But yeah, I don't, sure. I don't know. LNA says, it's rare that I have a complaint about the leftovers, but something really annoyed me in the final bedroom scene between Kevin and Nora in the most recent episode. This oh, is this is the shower about. thing, yeah. She says, if my boyfriend comes home from a night out in the woods <laughs> and he's covered in dirt, sweat, another man's blood, and God only knows what else, he is not climbing to bed with me without taking a shower first. And he sure as shit yeah. is not getting handcuffed to me. I'm I all, agree. I'm all for a sweaty, dirty... Uh, dirty gentleman in handcuffs, especially when it looks like Justin <laughs> Thoreau. But I draw the line at someone else's bullet wound blood. It's just a hygiene issue at this point. 
She says, I also seriously doubt that their washing machine is working properly, considering the last time cleaning up a body instead. I shudder to imagine the state that that unwashed bedding is going to be in a few days. While this episode is a 10 for 10 for me, I give the Garveys a 3 out of 10 for personal hygiene, mostly because Jill had the neighbor fix their sink. Okay. I was going to say that's generous, but you're right. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, just on the strength of Jill. Also, she's she's propping up this whole family. Speaking of minor notes of Jill, like... Mm -hmm. I think it's a mark of a great show that they very economically because you know me, I'm a baby watcher. Like it bothered me. And she put the baby in the box and the first thing, and she blacked out. And the first thing I'm like, Oh my God, is the baby still okay? Yeah. For the rest of the episode, like when Nora would go out to fuck around with Matt, she'd be like, Hey Jill, you got the baby. That instantly makes me not worry about the baby. Jill goes over to visit Michael tonight. I'm like, Oh my yeah. God, she just left Lily. Oh, she's got the baby monitor with me. I mean, she put it's her just, in a, a box of books first. But, <laughs> it's just a half but second, yeah. but it allows, allows me to not worry about what's going on with the baby. And it, and it gives you a sense that the writers care about the They're sweating the details. Like, yeah. We, they're like, oh, Jill wouldn't abandon this Plus, we are fucking with these people so much. We want to make sure that we're narrowing down what they're suspe- suspecting of us fucking with them. So, yeah, like, yeah. there's no baby danger here. Uh-huh. Everything's okay. Like, I, I makes me trust Lindelof and Perota. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nathan P., has a theory that he's working on that okay. I quite like. It says, the girls actually disappeared. Kevin went sleepwalking in the middle of the night and found the girls in the car. Then the girls vanish and, and vanish, and Kevin directly sees it. Recalling the last time the disappearance happened, mm. Kevin comes to the conclusion that he could be indirectly causing it, and thus in order to not harm Nora, Lily, and Jill, he tries to commit suicide. Then the earthquake happens, a fissure drains the lake, and Kevin has no recollection of events. Hmm. What do you think of that? Interesting. Uh, it would be consistent I mean, with him not wanting to kill himself, but still wanting to kill, end up killing himself. Like, oh my and god, loving I'm, his family too. Right? Yeah, it'd be one way to square that circle. It would be, or would be. round it, off that square. It's interesting. Whatever. Yeah, do all the above. Another theory that he read somewhere, uh, which I also read, saying that the Murphys. And the fire starters are faking this whole thing and working in concert to break down the ideals of the town and their belief that you are always safe there. So that John is orchestrated with his daughter and maybe even Erica, their disappearance, so he can start up some shit and be like, see, there's nothing special about this place and run off all the charlatans. I mean, that is not the impression I get from John's actions and John's demeanor. Could be really selling it. I... It's it's a man who doesn't drink, presumably because he nearly killed a man while drinking. I I think it's a danger. It's a slippery slope for this man to say, you know what? I can have a few in this plan. Cause no, you're right. It's it's I, it's I don't buy it. It's one of those theories that that sounds kind of cool. Uh, like, oh yeah, I guess this is like a fair, you know, some kind of crazy trying to dethrone like john clearly hates the concept of like he's kind of like jesus coming back to the tabernacle gets out of jail all these charlatans and fuck all this stuff get out and he's very has open contempt about all these people trying to get into the town like it's going to save them Mm -hmm. so there's some some interesting parallels about and also like the fact that him and his wife are openly working together on this and apparently that with a full knowledge of their family and maybe even the town knows about it Certainly more like all the firefighters know. There's some attractive points to this theory, but you're right. It's not consistent with the performance we're getting from him. I don't think so. The other thing about John that you, you brought up, you know, his his reaction to Miracles and Miracle, uh, he's 
is is he going to like if Kevin's saying, "Hey, these these kids disappeared," and his handprint is on the car, mm-hmm. like he, John's certainly not going to buy that story, even if the authorities do somehow or won't prosecute him for it. We know John is willing to go beyond the law to accomplish his means. Why don't you think would he'd he, be mad at Kevin? Why don't I think yeah. he would? No, I think he would. He'd oh, be super mad. Okay. And, and if and if Kevin's claiming, oh, it's a disappearance, John's not going to buy that, and he's going to go in and he's going to fuck shit up on Kevin, right? Probably. But again, I don't know exactly what Arthur... Lives. I feel like John's going to become a true believer by the end of this. I think that's his arc. Pro- Probably, but he's going to have to go through oh, yeah, a lot of shit to sure. get there. He's going to have to go through yeah. the Matt's Job experience. Come out the other side of it, yeah. Barry C., the episode ends with Patty telling uh, Kevin the girls departed. He certainly would not know either way because he was underwater at the time. So if pa- what Patty says is true, it lends a bit more to her being supernatural. If the girls turn up, it's all cl- it's clear that it's all in his head. What do you think of this? Because the ultimate defense mm. of this is, and we talked about this a little bit, is the Rickroll. Like, the Rickroll makes it to where she could be just fucking with Kevin. Certainly. Or if Patty is part of his subconscious, maybe that's what he's telling himself. Yeah, that he has... disappeared. Like, the things that she's right about are things that Kevin would have direct knowledge of because he was physically there. Or even if he wasn't physically there. I mean, he could just be... That's the conclusion that he has personally come to. But I'm, what I'm saying and is like the his, things the we other know... other half of his psyche is telling him that. Like, Patty knowing where the cell phone is, that's easily explainable because... Kevin was there too. Yes. He had a cinder block tied around himself, and absolutely, yeah. So I, but uh, that could also extend to this disappearance. Right. Yeah. I would say that the more they lean on the whole, well, this is just Kevin making shit up, like the Cleveland steamer incident, and uh-huh. I'm that's starting to wobble on the tightrope a bit for me. I don't know that he's making the Cleveland steamer stuff up, though. I know, I, I know. Lori could tell. I'm him just that. saying that the more they hint that, like, oh, you know, this this is just. Uh, well, who knows? It could just be Kevin just making theorizing stuff up and all that. I'm saying to that extent. Okay, you don't want to be led along. You like can't that use forever. that as a. I mean, I, this show's not even flirting with that. They no. they always make sure that both sides are covered. But that's one thing I'm going to be watching a little little close for because I wouldn't yeah. like that. Uh, Danny H said they towed the line between logic and supernatural brilliantly again this episode, always offering us two possibilities for what's going on. The don't get in the car. Kevin was pushing it. But he could have just heard a car coming from or seen it as it pulled up immediately after. I do feel like they overuse yeah. Patty slightly, and I'd like to see less of her now going forward. I disagree completely. Hmm. Um, and and there, that seems to be a common sentiment that like they're not – like even the people that are really liking the episodes, there's a contingent saying we don't like this Patty thing. Which might just be yeah. Patty was such a loathsome character last season that – they're continuing their hatred of her. Although, yes, that's true, but that's not the same character we're dealing with now, I don't think. Sure, well, I buy that. I could be wrong about that, but... No, I'm I'm with you, though. I think okay. you're right. Uh, he also has an interesting theory. I wasn't sure if at the end we were being led to believe that Jill was now sleepwalking. They made a point early in the episode of her not waking up during the earthquake to suggest that she's normally a deep sleeper, which I thought that was interesting. She kind of stirs, yeah. but the Norris lets go back to bed, and she just does. Mm-hmm. 17-year-old nosy, world-weary Jill just takes what her mom, stepmom says about this earthquake. Sure. Now that Kevin can't sleepwalk in this universe because he's presumably handcuffed to Nora, yeah. does the power transfer to Jill, or has she always had it? I don't know. Uh, I didn't take that final scene to mean she was sleepwalking. Um, I didn't either. But so a slight scraping hmm. outside her window wakes her up in a way that a giant earthquake that shatters 
crust and drains lakes, doesn't? Yeah, I mean, was she asleep at the time? Like, I I can't uh, recall if she was actually asleep or just yeah, laying Yeah, we in don't bed. know if it, like, in the middle of the night or if this is something that's, yeah. like, she was laying down to sleep and, Like, yeah. she had just brushed her teeth, just sure. crawled in bed. Yeah, you're right. Sleeping. We don't have enough chronological knowledge for that yet. But I it's I think it's a bit of a, a, a leap uh, to conclusions, Danny, to to speculate at that at this point. Sure. But go crazy. It's part <laughs> of the fun of the show. It is. You know, the thing I love about this, though, is that the show itself is actually giving us all these conflicting possibilities, like these ambiguities on both sides. It's not like the internet has to go, oh, well, this might have happened yeah. or this could have happened. They are. No, the show, they are too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm weeding that stuff out because that's an editorial of choice. You have to, if, if you got yes. a theory, it's got to have some factual basis. But, in but the it's show. not like the show is clearly telling us one thing and the internet yes. is saying, but it could also be this. Yes. No, no, no. The show is saying, here is this possibility. Here's this other possibility. Right. And it's setting it up as a duality. And I like that a lot. Yeah. That's, that's the difference between inferior shows it'd that do funny, this kind of it'd shit. It'd been funny if Lindelof, speaking of inferior shows, it'd been funny if Lindelof had used his time on The Talking oh, Dead God. just to be like, I, I, I need five minutes to clear up some confusion <laughs> on the, the leftovers. He starts talking like the Micro Machines man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, the dog catcher's not real. The bagel was. <laughs> he just <laughs> unleashed on all this truth on us. Uh-huh. Davey M said, uh, in Zealot, which is Re- Reza Aslan, we've been talking about him a lot in the last few weeks as he's the new religious advisor and I've been doing some private research and been kind of impressed with him. Consulting producer, he gets credited. Uh, but this Reza Aslan's book that I think I mentioned last, maybe this is something we were talking over lunch, this interview he had. Zealot's his book about Jesus. He's a Muslim. Yeah, we talked this, about this over this, lunch. This Fox anchor could not get it through her pea brain. <laughs> why a Muslim would write about Jesus. And he's like, well, I'm a Jesus. PhD in religious studies. <laughs> I've written about Muslims. I've written about Hindus. I've written about Buddhists and I'm eminently qualified. I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I, I'm fluent in Greek and I've translated parts of the Bible and I'm eminently qualified to talk about the life of Jesus. Uh-huh. But you're a Muslim. <laughs> Fuck off, Again, this is my job. Like, I have a... I have thought and written more about Jesus than 99% of Christians in the history (laughs) of the world. Sure, Give me a fucking break. Just because I ascribe to a different religion does not mean I can't know anything about your religion. But... You're a Muslim. I mean, it's that's literally. I'm. You think I'm that's making up, but there's ten minutes of that. It's Ugh. it's interesting to see him kind of professionally lose his shit about it towards the end. Yeah, that anyway, sounds amazing. Davey talks about this book in Zealot, Reza Aslan's latest book about the historical Jesus. He talks about how in that time period that it was actually chock full of messiahs, and I'm wondering mm. if his consulting on the show will lead to multiple messiah figures, all claiming to have their own power and miracles that the government i.e. Rome and Jesus' day, will crack down on and even execute. We've already seen some of that, but I'm wondering if it will all come down to the fore even more. Zelt's a really interesting read, and I recommend it to anyone with even a passing interest in religious mythology or history, which is on my reading list now, because I'm all in on this this Aslan guy. All right. Um, so what do you think? you think we're going to get a little bit more of these uh, false messiah? I'd be shocked if we didn't, honestly. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And that's kind of one of the themes of this season, right? Yeah. Is whether or not these are truly false prophets, actually miracles, all sorts of stuff like that. Right. Uh, so let's move on to... And I think it could apply to not only Isaac, but Virgil as well. Mm. Like, certainly John doesn't believe what his dad's saying. I assume it's his dad. <laughs> right. Making an assumption here, but 
Uh, he doesn't believe that, or he won't believe that if he finds out about it. Uh, okay, so we got. Uh, we I talked about how I'm kind of uh, buying Aslan stock. We got Joshua B who's selling. So it took me about 14 episodes, but I finally understand why this show doesn't do it for me. Hmm. You, it's, you're a mas- masochist, man. You've been watching the show for 14 episodes that you hate. Yeah. Which I can't say anything because I'm still doing a walking podcast. Uh, I'm one of those viewers who stuck around through the first season out of pure curiosity to see how they'd wrap up some of the plot elements. Despite my general disappointment, I started season two because it was filmed just 30 minutes from me. All the positive reviews <laughs> from critics said that it had improved over last year and because I like hearing you guys analyze the episodes. I recognize the great things about the show, the astounding acting, the elaborate scripts, the meticulous editing and production design, and yet I always come away from each episode feeling distinctly underwhelmed and emotionally distant. Some of this is just from the fact that I can see the underlying filmmaking techniques too sharply. In parenthetical, he says it feels like the creators are trying much too hard to make me feel a certain way. But with episode 204, I realize that just I fundamentally don't agree with let the mystery be theme of the song or the show. Rather, the mission Mm. of the leftovers is to set up a bunch of ambiguous events and purposely never fully explain them for two main purposes. One, to symbolize, symbolize the natural, inexplicable elements within our own lives. And two, to watch how people deal with these elements emotionally. Mm-hmm. That's perfectly fine and worthwhile mission, except the show seems to go a step further and advocate that the correct response to these mysteries is to simply accept them as it is. People who dwell and fixate on the mystery are demonized, i.e. the guilty remnant. Those who resist supernatural explanations of the mystery are psychologically broken, i.e. Kevin or John. Those who embrace the mystery are seen in a positive and glowing light, i.e. Matt. And this week's episode, we have a character bluntly state that nothing is more dangerous than someone who believes in nothing. This season of the show has brought aboard Reza Aslan, who is a very outspoken critic of atheism. I could go on and on, but I think it's clear that the position in The Leftovers is to attribute the mysteries of life to something beyond our human knowledge and leave it at that. As a scientist and atheist, I find that sentiment to be intellectually lazy and very off-putting. Despite all the obvious skill going into the production of the show, I just can't get on board something that actively argues in favor of ignorance. I believe you guys are skeptics as well, so I was wondering what you think of this worldview and how you reconcile with the quality of the show, or am I completely off base in my characterization? Uh, I'm going to let you take this first because okay. you tend to be spr- that... Springing this on me without having <laughs> any time you're, to you're think locked, about it. You're, 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 uh, or I'm locked, I guess, to your jack. So I'll let you be the jack. So I, I am a skeptic. I consider myself an atheist as well. Um, I don't have a huge problem with the way the show is approaching it. Um, I, I think they've hinted at some ongoing investigation, right? I mean, in this season, we saw MIT go in, swoop in and buy Nora's house yes. for three million bucks or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think there is behind the scenes some kind of investigation ongoing mm-hmm. about this whole thing, but yeah, clearly the characters we're dealing with for the most part are kind of on board with this idea that it's something we don't need to investigate. We just kind of need to get past it or embrace the unknown. And so I, I don't find too much fault in your description of the show, but th- there is, I, I feel like they're doing a better job than you're giving them credit for showing all sides of it. Yeah. Plus it's, you know, it's a work of fiction. So automatically my hackles are less raised when, cause I can just fully embrace like, Hey, I could watch a show about 
God and Jesus and angels. And if it's a good yeah. show and interesting, I got nothing like I could enjoy that. I mean, just as much as I can enjoy something about dragons or hobbits. Sure, sure. Or warlocks or whatnot, yeah. you know. Um, I also kind of disagree uh, with his stance that Reza Aslan is anti-atheist. I think oh, really? he got in some scuffles with Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris. <laughs> Who hasn't? But that's Come the on. thing. Like <laughs> Sam Harris, I believe the Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins are kind of asshole atheists. And they are, mm. uh, Reza uh, calls them anti-theists. That like not sure. only do they not believe in God, but they actively. I agree with that category. And they've said a bunch of dumb stuff. Like I've, I heard Neil deGrasse Tyson t- himself. Like you can't get bigger skeptic atheists than Neil deGrasse Tyson, right? He was taken aback when he asked uh, uh, Dawkins. He's like, so would – or Dawkins mentioned that he wouldn't let a Hindu surgeon do surgery on him because I can't trust my life oh, with a man who believes on, in poppycock. What's up? Even Neil is like, for real? For real? For real, you won't let a Christian <laughs> operate on you. What do you think of the Human Genome Project, Dawkins? <laughs> Like for fuck's sake! No, it's right. He, the, the dude who was the head of that is a devout Christian. And Sam Harris is famous. there is such a thing as as the separate this right. what is it cognitive dissonance? Yeah. You know, you can hold two different beliefs about two different things at the right. same time. Right. And Sam Harris is the guy saying that if he could wave a magic wand and eliminate either rape or or, or religion from the world, he'd choose religion. It's like. Even if you I, man, even if you carefully have Jesus. thought about that and weighed the balances and personally make that choice, I, as a public figure saying that, you are putting yourself into like I don't even know what it is like uber atheist or an, like anti theist. Yeah, I mean part so part of the part of that is the question asker's fault. Yes. Like fuck you for asking that question. Number one, and number two, fuck you for answering that question. <laughs> right. Um, that's but, a question you can't get away with. So answering. I think that's the the people that Reza has a uh, problem with, and I've I honestly don't like people uh, that that I guess militant about it or almost. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And I know you know you and I have talked about this even on podcasts a lot about you know yeah I I'm an atheist and I enjoy being an atheist and I don't mind talking to people about the different faith and and answering good faith questions about my atheism and and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think these um the other people are actually weirdly making the situation worse. And I I, I, I I can't even put my finger on why it bothers me other than it just seems if you're advocating for a position, you don't want to antagonize the people that you are trying yeah. to win over. Because you'll end up losing a lot of people who think you've gone off the deep end. Yeah, like there's a, a better carrot and, you know, you draw more flies or sugar than vinegar, all those kind yeah, of things. Yeah. So I feel like if you're wanting to do a movement, you are... Uh, shooting yourself in the foot and fundamentally under- misunderstanding. The other thing about it is that if he's, of course, he's going to hate Sam Harris because he's a Muslim and Sam Harris. I mean, I don't think it's fair to say he hates all Muslims, but he hates the faith of. He thinks there's something fundamentally wrong with Islam, Muslim yeah. faith as practiced today, and there's a whole mm-hmm. bunch of controversy about that as well. So, but I don't know. I mean, if you were to self-identify, maybe you really admire uh, a Dawkins or a a uh, uh, a Hitchens or a uh, a Sam Harris, and you are extra sensitive to that, and it does bother you. I could see that. Like, I would imagine Sam Harris hates this show. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, certainly. I just think they're doing, for me personally, a good enough job of like 
there are people investigating this. You know, not everybody has embraced it in the same way. Um, to where I'm not like, oh, the whole world just doesn't care about finding the truth of this thing. No, some people do. Yeah, the the whole world doesn't. Also, just, it's just, super just, tough to investigate. <laughs> I mean, I, I will say that I, I I feel you where you're saying that the editorial voice of the show, Joshua, is that the believers are onto something that denialists are not. I suppose so. But this, yeah. again, that's why I, I think The Leftovers is a stunningly spectacular science fiction world. Yeah. Because they are taking this one little thing about reality and poink, and everything else flows from that. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's like if you're in Star Wars and there's people denying the Force. Like Han Solo was wrong in A New Hope. And, I mean, as an atheist, do you take that personally? Maybe it's because you're in a galaxy far, far away. Sure, and, sure. And, but now it's like this That's is present day. Argument. And, like, people are acting like supernatural things could be real. Well, but in this just, universe, they could be. But, yeah, I mean, view this thing as an alternate universe. Yeah, right? maybe that would help out. Because other, you I mean, you, you, I think you see the charms of the show. I mean, if, if, I don't know, if John Murphy was a Gungan, would that make any difference to you? <laughs> like, what the hell? If Kevin was, I don't know, a Nemoidian. Misa John John Murphy. <laughs> oh, Jesus. And if he just races episode one, so there you go. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, 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 just yeah, don't take it like too seriously. But again, like I, I feel like I, I don't know. There's like some sh- people that are apologetic for not liking the show because it's it's like one of those things where I can see this is well crafted and super well made and like it, man, the people that are really getting it are really getting it, and you kind of feel like you're missing out. But sometimes it's okay. Like, I can get it just not being for you. Like, like the Americans. I don't like how it makes me feel. That's exactly how I felt I about the Americans. And that's I don't why like the subject matter, whatever. Just, yeah, I nope that a show because it's a great show. I can see why everybody likes it, but like this is too heavy for me and I couldn't take it. Yeah. And you don't was, have to keep watching it, man. And I was overworked. At the, yeah, you, you can just – I can if I can stop podcasting in the middle of something, you can sure stop watching it. Yep. Or you can continue to watch it and scratch your head and maybe eventually it will click for you. I don't know. Or just give There's in. No, no give right or wrong in answers. like the universe wants you to and stop thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, drink. Drink. Have a couple of drinks go. before you watch the show. Mm, drink heavily. There you go. That, that That'll works solve all your existential problems. <laughs> uh, that's all the feedback we got. That was like the uh, letter of the week position, I guess. Cool. If you got some more, if you got some thoughts on this podcast or next week's episode, because we'll be back next week, you can send those in to leftovers at baldmove.com. Or on our forums at forums.baldmove.com. We got some rollicking threads on, on the show as well. I'd like to invite you all over to participate. Uh, anything else all you right. want to say, Jim? Nope, that's it. We'll see you guys next week, next Tuesday, for another episode. And until then, I'm Jim. I'm Aaron. See you.